Hi, I'm Lucas. And I'm Sarah, and we're the host for today's episode of Dose of Pharma. Yeah, so today's we have a very special guest from Parkville faculty who will be covering about where research as a career can lead you to, as well as drawing on the similarities and differences between research and industry. And lastly, he will introduce about a new course, Masters of Pharmacy at Parkville Monash. Our guest has studied pharmacy and progressed into a PhD and postdoc doing peptide molecular modelling, and this has enabled him to travel the world while studying and researching. Ultimately, he ended up being a lecturer at Melbourne University, where he ran his own research lab and has now transitioned over to Monash Uni as the course director of the new Masters of Pharmaceutical Science. So let's welcome Tony Hughes. I guess we'll just jump straight onto the questions. Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, Tony, uh, we know that you're a lecturer as well as uh, this year you've been stepping up as the new director, course director for the Master of Farmside. So, can you tell us a bit about your career and about what your specialization are? Just to yeah, let like out give us a bit of a picture of what you do. Yeah, yeah like. Let them know about your background. Yeah, sure. So I actually studied pharmacy. Uh, I studied at at uh, at Monash, but when I studied there, it wasn't called Monash. It was before that. It was the Victorian College of Pharmacy, exactly the same campus. I think we were one building less than uh, than you have now. So I, I studied pharmacy, but the pharmacy degree then was more like the Bachelor of Pharmaceutical Science with a bit of pharmacy stuff thrown in. So it's very much more a pharmaceutical science degree than uh, you would do now as part of pharmacy. Um, so I did that. And then I did a master, what was called a master of pharmacy, which was a, basically a, a master's by research. And that was also at uh, Victorian College of Pharmacy, now, now Monash. And that was in the area of uh, computer modeling, like uh, uh, com uh, computer molecular modeling, which was really a kind of big thing uh, back then. This is 1985 and it was, this was going to be the technique that was going to solve uh, a lot of problems with uh, drug discovery. We were going to be able to just design drugs and it's helped, but of course it didn't solve all the problems as all of these things never uh, do. So I did that uh, master's degree for two years. I then went and did my PhD at uh, the School of Pharmacy at the University of London, which is now uh, the School of Pharmacy at, uh, at uh, University College, the University College Pharmacy in, uh, in London. So again, change of name of the institute. So I did my PhD there and that was strangely in synthetic chemistry, uh, in synthetic organic chemistry. And I, I never felt that I was an expert at that or was very comfortable with that, but you know, you do a PhD in it, right? That's how it goes. Uh, and then after that, I went to uh, Germany and did a postdoc. So I uh, uh, spent four years at what's called the Max Planck Institute for Psychiatry. It's now called the Max Planck Institute for Neurobiology. So another change of name of uh, Institute. Uh, and I worked there on a completely different area. I worked on cellular and molecular biology as an area of science and looking specifically at neurotrophic factors. 
Um, so I spent four years there and then I went from, which is in Munich, and then from Munich, I went back to Melbourne and took up a job as a, initially as a lecturer in the Department of Pharmacology, which is now the Department of Molecular Biology and Pharmacology, I think it's called, at Melbourne Uni. So another change of uh, name of uh, institute that I've been at. Uh, and I spent 25 years there, lecturer, senior lecturer, associate professor, ran a research lab and my research lab pulled together molecular modelling, synthetic chemistry and cellular and molecular biology. So all those things that I'd done as part of my training to try and make small molecule mimics of growth factors. And we started off with neurotrophic factors and we ended up with neurotrophic factors, so a bit of a circle with that. And then mid-pandemic last year, I left Melbourne Uni and uh, had a week off and then started at, uh, at Monash Uni. And uh, my job here, apart from to do some, some awesomely good fun face-to-face -face teaching with, uh, with you guys, is to be the director of the new Master of Pharmaceutical Science. So I'm helping to establish that program and we'll um, make sure that that program runs okay when it begins in semester one of 2022, which is um, next year. So I think that's... That's a very diverse and like <laughs> huge background. Um, before we like expand more into like what your research was like and what you're doing now, um, a lot of our viewers may want to travel when they're a bit older or when they graduate. What was it like studying in different countries? Yeah, well, that's, that's a really, uh, really great question. And that was probably the most important bit of it, I think. The work that I did and the studies that I did in PhD in, in, in chemistry, I could have done a PhD in chemistry. I could have continued chemistry studies at, at pharmacy college at, at, at Monash Uni. Neurotrophic factors I could have done down the road at Weehigh at Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. So there was absolutely no question if I'd stumbled, wanted to work in those fields, I could have done them without having left my hometown, without having left Melbourne. Um, so the opportunity to travel was really um, the kind of driving reason behind doing those things. And the areas that I ended up studying and working in were just by chance, it was literally they were just fortunate things. I went to the UK because my the my boss, who was the head of the chemistry department here at, at, at uh, Pharmacy College, Peter Andrews, knew the guy that was the head of the chemistry department at the School of Pharmacy at University of London. And I went there thinking I was doing one project and I ended up doing another completely different project because Willie, the boss, changed his mind completely while I was in between Melbourne and, and, and London. Uh, so it's completely chance that I ended up doing that. Um, same, the neurobiology thing, I, I, I went, I thought it would be nice to learn something outside of peptide chemistry and molecular modelling. And I thought, well, molecular biology, that's a kind of cool area. So I just wrote to a bunch of places and I, I, for some personal reasons, I wanted to spend some time in Germany. And uh, yeah, the, the chance came to go there. So the thing, I guess, with, with, with studying and working somewhere, you're not a tourist. You go there and you live the life of the person 
there of a, of a um, you're in that country you have a house or an apartment or, or whatever you have to go to the shops uh you have to learn the language whether it's another version of english or or, or whatever it is you're doing and uh it's completely different to being a tourist and it's a sort of opportunity that when you're particularly when you're young and, and you don't necessarily have all the connections that you've got to maintain, um, you can just sort of go and, and do something like that. And, uh, yeah, it's harder to do as you get older. So it's a really great opportunity when you get a chance to do it. Now, at the moment, of course, it's really weird because none of us can travel easily. We can't even travel within our own cities easily. Um, but eventually that'll change. And I think when it happens, people will once again realise, you know, the importance of uh, being able to go and spend an extended length of time somewhere else. Having said all that, I got really homesick at various times. And when I eventually wanted to come back, it was a really strong desire to come back. And it was to come back to familiar stuff and to family. And that ended up being a really important reason to come back home. Yeah. So you had to like, gain a massive sense of independence and like you couldn't really just enjoy it for what it was you had to assimilate yourself into that environment quite quickly was that an easy transition for you had or was it quite a new experience ah that's a really that's it's like you know something (laughs) (laughs) um so I, i don't think i was a very mature um young person so when i went to england uh how old was i i was 21 I think. And I didn't know a lot of stuff. I was pretty naive. And um, so, you know, I arrived in, I'd never been outside of Australia before. And I did a quick trip through America, which was kind of really, well, my first foreign country. And I arrived in London and I'd never left Australia before. And it was, it was just, it was, yeah, it was just really um, a kind of wild ride. But it was also, I, I didn't finish my master's degree before I left. I didn't finish my thesis, I should say. And so I ended up spending a year of my PhD writing and not writing my master's thesis. Uh, so that actually made the first year of the PhD really difficult because every moment that I thought I could be enjoying myself, I felt I should be writing, finishing off my thesis, right? Yeah, which I should have finished before I left. And so I had this sort of, kind of guilty 12 months, I think, in, in London where I dealt with finishing off something from Australia and trying to take advantage of where I was and learn a new field and be in a lab and do a PhD and stuff. So that was that was a really kind of uh, mentally challenging time, I think. Uh, it calmed down a little bit when, I, uh, when I'd finished the uh, finally handed in my master's thesis, which is crazy thing. Don't ever contemplate i mean i don't think you could even do it now but don't finish something and go on to the next thing if i'm going to give any advice to anybody about anything so when i finished my phd i finished my phd i handed in and i left england like i made sure that i finished it before i like time management was quite vital for that time period time management would have been would have been vital yeah my time management was pretty um pretty crappy uh so yeah getting that stuff um really happening i think is a really really good thing to do if there's a regret is it a regret yeah it's just what i was i was just doing that stuff yeah yeah it's a it's a learning process for everyone i think yeah, for sure yeah yeah 
so you've talked about your research. Um, in particular, I think you have started a research on multiple sclerosis. So uh, can you tell us about like what your research involves and bearing in mind that most of our uh, viewers probably won't have a solid knowledge on the research. So can you keep it a little bit simple for us? Yeah, sure, sure. So uh, when I was at Melbourne Uni, I I'm, I'm headed what we called the Drug Design Lab. And we had a, a, a series of projects where we were trying to make small molecules that would mimic the action of proteins. Uh, and we concentrated initially on the neurotrophic factors, as nerve um, growth factors. And of those, we concentrated on a molecule called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So we had a series of projects that ran over uh, multiple years, uh, creating largely cyclic peptides that would mimic loop regions of BDNF that bound to the two receptors that BDNF worked through. And um, we did this work early on thinking that we could make compounds that could be used to prevent neurodegeneration and therefore could be used to treat neurodegenerative diseases like motor neurone disease, uh, maybe Parkinson's disease. And so we put a lot of our energy into, uh, in, into that. And we developed these molecules quite early on. Uh, they were work from PhD students and, and uh, honour students. Uh, specifically Paul O'Leary, who was my first PhD student, uh, an honour student, Richard Soir, and then an honour student who became a PhD student, Jordan Fletcher. So those three students worked really uh, intensively and brilliantly on these, um, on these projects. And we were interested, as I say, in neurodegeneration. And in a sense, that was probably a really difficult area to work in because in neuro, most neurodegenerative diseases, by the time a patient's diagnosed, they've already got significant neuronal loss and it's really hard to reverse the loss. The best you could do is kind of halt the process of further death of neurons. So clinically, it's a really hard area to work in, but that was the sort of indications that we had. Later on, um, there was a group working downstairs in, uh, at Melbourne Uni headed by Simon Murray in the Department of Anatomy and Neuroscience, and they were interested in multiple sclerosis. And they'd found that BDNF, this molecule we'd been making memetics of, uh, had some mixed effects in, in myelination in both the peripheral and the central nervous systems. So we gave them our compounds and uh, I gave Simon's group our compounds and together we looked at um, the effects of our, our compounds on myelination. And our compounds were different, interesting because BDNF itself could work through two receptors and we had compounds that could work through one receptor or through the other receptor. So we could dissect the, use the compounds to dissect the actions through those two different receptors. So um, we ended up, we've got with one compound which is able to promote myelination in the peripheral nervous system. And we've got another compound which is able to promote myelination in the central nervous system. And of course it's in the central nervous system where multiple sclerosis uh, myelin is, is lost. So uh, we spent, some years with, uh, with Simon's uh, group. Uh, we had a series of NHMRC grants, National Health and Medical Research uh, Council grants, uh, trying to further develop uh, these compounds, looking either to treat instances of peripheral demyelination or perhaps 
now is a more significant area that is central to myelination, which multiple sclerosis is the kind of main disease there. And um, as it stands at the moment, I, I left my um, lab and my research career behind to come to, uh, to Monash. Uh, Simon's lab's continuing with that work now, and they've got a grant application in uh, to continue the work with uh, a series of next generation compounds that we've made that are able to promote myelination in the central nervous system. And that's a really cool thing. The treatments currently for multiple sclerosis uh, don't cause remyelination. They actually do th generally do things to modify the immune response, the autoimmune response, which is the basis behind multiple sclerosis. These compounds probably have less to do with the immune response and are actually able to cause myelination or remyelination of, uh, of damaged uh, nerves uh, by acting on the um, uh, oligodendrocytes, which are the myelinating cells. Uh, so will the compounds we have actually ever be used as, as drugs? I don't know that they're the best examples, the best starting points for drugs, but what they are doing is showing that if you can activate this particular BDNF receptor, it's a way you can bring about remyelination in the central nervous system. So maybe I think the really good outcome would be someone goes, yep, yeah, we've got another compound that does this that's maybe pharmaceutically more acceptable, um, but will have contributed somehow to the, to the foundation science behind that. Yeah, that's all kind of in another life now because I um, have left that behind and it's kind of continuing um, with other people. Yeah, before we discuss your transition from research to like education, um, I guess you've highlighted it. A lot, it's a lot of trial and error and the outcomes aren't necessarily like, you know, this isn't necessarily going to bear a treatment, but it's paved the way. Like, how do you, your team and you when you're a part of it deal with any of the setbacks you encountered? How do you deal with the setbacks? So I think one of the things that a lot of people talk about, they say that research is really difficult. And you can hear that and go, yeah, yeah, it's difficult because you've got to pipette and, and stuff. That's not the difficult bit. So that I think the difficult bit is, is what you've just said, is that you have setbacks. And the setbacks come in all sorts of forms. Um, experiments give you a different outcome than what you expect. No? They're experiments. So you have an idea of what the outcome is going to be and the outcome is different. And sometimes that's really exciting. More often than not, from my experience, it's hugely frustrating. So you go, why didn't that go that way? And then you doubt what it is that you did. And when you start doubting what it is that you did, then you, it's really easy to kind of doubt everything that you do. So part of it is building up the confidence, I guess, with what you're doing so that you can believe it. So when you get an unexpected result, you believe the unexpected result, or you can take the steps to show that that unexpected result is kind of the real result rather than that you mucked it up along the way. And the other kind of setbacks you get are is, so when you're doing research in an academic environment, you, you don't get money from the university to do it. Mostly you have to apply for funding for it, for external funding. And the majority of that money um, would come from uh, the government, from government grants that you apply for. And there are more and more people doing science than there were when I started. And there are not proportionally more money in the system. So there's proportionally a lot less money in the system. So you apply for a grant now, knowing that you're probably not likely to get it. 
So there aren't many things that you do in your life where you put in, you know, writing a grant application is probably the actual writing the application probably takes four to six weeks of pretty concerted effort. And it's built on work that you will have been working on over the last six, 12 months, six years, whatever to put in. So it's a big project and it's almost certain to fail. And there aren't many things that you do in your life where you're going to put this big effort in knowing that your most likely outcome is you'll, you'll fail. And you just, if you think I'm going to put a big effort, I'm going to cross the road. You don't think I'm going to fail crossing the road. You think I'm, I'm going to get to the other side. So you have to be able to steal yourself the fact that when you put in a grant application, most likely you won't get it, no matter how good it is, because there's lots and lots of people and there'll be lots and lots of good ones. And it's pretty hard to distinguish between that good versus that good versus that good, a lot of opinion and stuff in there. Um, so that's really hard because you then not only do you not get the money, you get told all the reasons why this is not good enough. And you thought it was good enough. You know, you put in six weeks worth of work and you built it on five years of research before that. And it's, you know, you've had collaborations and you've thought about it a lot. And someone says, no, that's no good. So you got to come back, brush yourself off and come back and do it again. And I think that's really, really, that's a really challenging thing. The people that I've seen that are really successful in science just go, yeah, whatever, and just keep going. And they have a real either have or they've built up a real strong uh, uh, resilience to, uh, to that. So I think you need, in order to do research really well, um, you need to be resilient and to have built up resilience. I'm going to say you don't need to be resilient. You can, you, can, you can learn it. Okay. So I don't want people to think, oh, no, I'm not resilient, therefore I can't do it, which is something I would say. You can do better than that. So I think you can learn to be resilient. Um, you need to have um, some, a lot of self-belief. You need to learn how to have a lot of self-belief with it. Yeah. Um, so that you believe in what you're doing and that then helps with your resilience. And you need to have that strong sense of um, self-efficacy that you're capable and, and, and reasonable self, you know, like evidence-based self-efficacy, if you like, not just I'm really good at stuff when you're actually not very good at it. But I think the worst is when you think I'm not very good at this, when in fact you're pretty good at it. And the tough thing about that in science is that your self-efficacy is constantly being challenged. What you came up with wasn't good enough. And so you've got to go, yep, it's good enough because I know it's good enough. And then you, and you work through. So, you know, the people I think that do really well in science have had those qualities of resilience and self-efficacy and, 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 and self-belief and you know, got to be reading a lot and, uh, and staying in contact with what it is that you're doing. Um, but it's really easy for, to get like kind of challenge, challenge, challenge to get beaten down from it. So that's the, I think the, the tough bit of doing science, the experiments themselves, you know, they're just things you can learn. Yeah. It does sound like, researchers need to like have persevere through a lot of challenges and yeah. be mentally strong as well because um of all the things they have to go through i think most people in the industry probably won't ever touch on because like it's very different in terms of the mentality it's very interesting to hear from yeah like, you know the industry questions a really interesting one i think the challenges in industry 
are a little bit different, but not so different, and sometimes very much more cutthroat. So um, big pharmaceutical industry will tend to change focus or want to change focus. And if you're in a, working on a project and your um, company decides that's not a project to work on anymore, that project gets shut down. And if you're lucky, you get put onto another project and it could happen Friday night to Monday. So um, there you've got to be able to go, okay, I'm changing my focus from serotonin to noradrenaline <laughs> or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and you know, there was a while back, probably about 12 years ago, most of the major pharmaceutical companies around the world decided to shut down their, their neuroscience programs, their, their programs to discover CNS active drugs. They shut them down. And so the people that were working on them, some of them got redeployed elsewhere in the companies, but a lot of them were just told, well, we're shutting down our program and we've got nowhere else for you in the company. So, you know, varying degrees of transition will help and so on, but they were told they weren't needed anymore because the company decided not to do that. And the drug companies around the world basically thought that CNS research was too, it was not producing drugs. So they just stopped doing it. Uh, things have shifted a little bit since then, uh, kind of righted themselves a little bit, but a lot of really good scientists ended up without jobs. Um, because they were working on an, an area that their companies decided was not relevant anymore to them. Yeah. So there are real challenges. It's not, I don't think that industry is any more certain a, um, a uh, research area than uh, working in academia research. It's, it's up to a company who just can just, if people management in the company decides they want to change direction, they just change direction and you've got to go along with that. So, uh, yeah the people who work in industry kind of think, oh, the academics have got all this freedom. It's great. They can do whatever they want. And the people that work in academia think of oh, the people that work in industry. That's great because the money kind of flows out of the ventilation system into you know, falls down on the lab bench and into the tea room. And neither of those views are true. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's challenging no matter what. Yeah. It's kind of like scary where, you know, obviously like at the end of the day, they're a company and they have to make a profit. So it's not always about what you're passionate about and not, you're not always going to be able to take everything with you and keep working on it. It's just kind of, you have to follow one directive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you still, I guess the, the people that do really well in industrial research can take on passion, can become passionate about something. And when they are not passionate about that, because they're not working on that. They become passionate about something else. So it's it, it, it may be that it's not, you have to change your passion with it. So you probably need, in industry, in industry, you probably need a greater flexibility, I think. I think your flexibility is would be really valued in industry. And in academic research, uh, sometimes I think that being the perseverance that you spoke about, yeah, I think is a, is a, perhaps a, maybe is a, is a, you know, a quality that's really valued, but you know, they work in, in both environments as well too. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for your advice on that. And like, I'm sure that's a lot for our like viewers to unpack because I, I never even thought of it that way, but um, yeah. Going no, I, I don't, to... One of the things I don't say, I don't want to make it seem like it's really negative because I've presented this kind of really negative view, but you know, when, when research works really well, it's, 
it's super exciting and you get a result that you know you see whatever you're doing whether it's you know drug discovery research development research or, or whatever you're doing you see something that no one else has seen before in the world and that's really exciting and it's come often from your own um, reasoning and thinking so there's the kind of hey i came up with this and wow it's this no one else has seen it so you know that's really exciting and it's extreme it's really creative i think the way society is we tend to think i think society tends to think that artists are creative and scientists are nerds logical or something and that distinction is really artificial and relatively recent as well to you know go back a couple hundred years and scientists and artists were the same people because they were the ones that had read and had traveled and 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 so they were doing the same sorts of thing. they were doing the same things they're being creative in art and being creative in science and creative in thinking uh, so yeah science is a really creative potentially to be really creative thing you learn science in a textbook it doesn't seem creative because you learn the stuff um, but when you're at the frontier that sort of front edge where there is no textbook for that you're helping to write it and uh your thinking then takes it in 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 different directions. So that's the sort of I think the really exciting bit. There's the opportunity to be as creative as you can be and to be rewarded for that in you know in all sorts of ways. That's sick. So with like bearing keeping that in mind, that creativity and the skills you mentioned earlier that are vital for research. How do you plan on incorporating this in your the new Masters of Pharmaceutical Science and like what's the goal of it? Yeah, that's 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 great, isn't it? Because uh, what we want to do, I guess, with the with the new Master of, Master of Pharmaceutical Science degree is to um, to help build up uh, a, a student's uh, knowledge of how drugs can be discovered and created starting with what we already know so from from past um uh examples and then moving into unknown territory with it and so the idea is if we give you sufficient knowledge and skills uh from the past and what we know is happening and where things might go then that makes you puts the student in the position where they can start to make their own clever connections between things. So it's really about trying to, to equip you with the knowledge and with the skill set. So when you go out and you've got a problem in front of you, you've got the capacity to be able to solve that problem or push creatively from that point. Um, so it's 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 going beyond what you do in our undergraduate degree in Bachelor of Pharmaceutical Science, which is really getting a foundation for you. And this is now taking on that foundation, which may be a student who's come from a Bachelor of Pharmaceutical Science, or it may be a student that's come from elsewhere with another, um, another background, and going to the next level with the knowledge and skills uh, so that you're, you become um, yeah, kind of professional ready, I think would be the, the way to look at it. And uh, you know, the, the transition, I guess, we do, it goes from, as I say, kind of studying historical cases through to state-of-the-art techniques and approaches through to an extended uh, placement, which we think 
majority of people will do in, in an industry setting, but there'd be the capacity to do it in a lab setting as well too. And then coupled with a capstone unit, that gives you the chance then to kind of exercise your um, your professional creativity, I guess. So what we take early in the earlier in the degree, you then get a chance to uh, explore it, document it, um, cheer about it in the uh, in the final part of the program. So I, I think we'll end up with graduates who are who have appropriate self confidence, like that they'll be um, understand that they'll be good enough to be able to do well, good enough to be able to take on a lot of challenges that are, are, are present in in um, pharmaceutical science, particularly in the areas of drug discovery development, but also in other areas of, of, of formulation and, uh, and, and and manufacture of uh, of uh, things which require the same sorts of approaches. And uh, with that strong foundation, it will be easy for a student, I think, to be able to adapt to those different situations. So we won't be giving you the answers. I think we're setting you up to be able to find the answers because we don't know what the question, we won't even know what the questions are straight away. And you're going to be posed with the questions as you get out into the uh, into your careers afterwards. So um, from the launch you had for at Monash, uh, I think there was an outline of the semesters and the units. So I noticed that a big part of it was uh, based on the industry placements. Um, so what would you say about like the benefits of the industry placements at the Masters of Farm Site and uh, how important are the business sense in a sense for like us students or like potential students for the Masters in their future careers yeah like, yeah that, again they're really really good questions i think so the the, the placement i think is good because it's a um a 18 credit point unit so it's three quarters of the semester allows you basically to do 12 weeks of, of, of placement and we'll have, I think the capacity, we're going to look at the capacity maybe to expand that with some not for credit options. So you could do possibly a longer placement, but not get credit points for it where that might be appropriate. But in any case, it's 12 week placement, three months. It's a, it's a substantial period of time where you'd be embedded in a, in a, in a company. And um, I think it's a real chance to learn Obviously, some some aspects of pharmaceutical science. You'll have a project that you'll um, that you'll be assigned to in in some way, as well as the sort of uh, uh, be involved in the day to day running of the of the of how, how the corporation that you're working with uh, operates. It's going to depend very much on what the company is, the sort of experience that a student gets. So choosing the uh, company will will be important thing choosing where to do a placement if you're in a very large company you're probably going to be further removed from the day-to-day -day running of how that organization operates so i imagine if you were doing a placement with a um a, a farmer organization a, a bigger one you're probably not going to have much to do with how that farmer organization operates if you're working with a small biotech company um, you may be working, you know, the person that's in the lab may also be the chief scientific officer for the, for the company, or they may be the CEO for the company. So you'll be much closer to that then. Um, so the actual experience and, and 
what you get in sort of business sense, I think will depend a lot on where you do the placement. Uh, and we'll be helping students to, to find appropriate placement um, places. We're building up um, uh, a lot of experience. We have in, in the faculty a lot of experience with uh, placements from the undergraduate um, space. And uh, we're working also with uh, um, uh, a group within Monash to uh, help manage that. So we'll be able to support students into that placement and, of course, support them through the um, placement. Also, in the third semester of the unit, we'll have uh, a unit where we will be dealing with um, those professional skills, which are sort of outside of uh, science that would be really important for helping you to uh, navigate your way through uh, um, business and employed life. So uh, they are important and you can't really, being able to come in and do an experiment in a, in, a, in a laboratory is one thing. Being able to communicate that to people is another. Being able to work with a team to decide what to do in an experiment is another thing. Uh, being able to integrate that into a larger um, strategy for a company is another thing. And so we'll aim through throughout the, um, uh, throughout the course to give examples of uh, and, and give context for um, uh, pharmaceutical science uh, issues that we'll talk about. So we'll, get, we'll put them in um, the uh, kind of industrial context and uh, throughout uh, professional tools um, uh, unit uh, to begin to equip students with uh, some of the professional skills that they'll need, which they'll develop further then in the, in the placement. Yeah, so it's like almost like um, giving us all the practical skills and like emphasizing that and giving us like more commercial awareness. Cause it's like, Lucas has another year, but it's quite daunting that at the end of the year, I'm going to be graduating and going for jobs. So like, it's really great that this, um, has become an opportunity for students. Yeah. And, you know, I think there'll be, we'll have some students that might want to go straight on from, uh, from a bachelor of pharmaceutical science. Um, but we'll have other students that may want to go out and work. Uh, and they may um, take a, uh, a, a take a position um, for a year or two, and um, and then realise that um, they could benefit from um, that greater equipping that we spoke of, both the kind of mental and 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 uh, skills equipping uh, that would put them in in a different position in 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 industry where they'd have a kind of greater scope to move upwards or forwards, depending how you orient your company, I guess. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think some of our students will go straight on and some of our students will work and come back in, uh, we'll see them in a, in a couple of years time. Yeah, it does sound very exciting to like learn about, just not only about like furthering the foundation, but like knowing about like the different aspects that comes into pharmaceutical science that you might not come across when you're working alone. So yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, I, I think we'll see, uh, it'll be really interesting to compare the graduates of the two. I mean, we, we obviously, we have lots of pharmaceutical, Bachelor of Pharmaceutical Science graduates, so we know the kind of standards, excuse me, the standards that they reach and, uh, and the qualities that they have. And I think comparing that to what we get from a master's graduate will be really interesting exercise. We don't have those master's graduates yet, but I, I think if we, if those students, if they meet the learning outcomes that we uh, set, which 
they will. Um, then they'll be much more mature. They'll be much better equipped. They'll be very flexible, uh, and they'll be they'll be up for the challenge. Um, I think it'll be they'll be yeah. I suspect they'll be highly sought after. Yeah. Um, I think that might be all that we have time for. Is there anywhere we can find out, like our viewers and us can find out more about the course and you specifically as well? Yeah, so um, probably the best thing I can do is to, uh, uh, I'll send you through a link to the, uh, I think it's study at Monash site, which we have at the moment, uh, which will be updated as it gets updated and we'll eventually have links to the handbook entry and handbook entries and so on for the units. We're working on those at the moment, so I don't have the links, but through the study, I think it's study at Monash uh, page that will get uh, updated. If you're a Bachelor of Pharmaceutical Science student, um, we'll be updating you through emails and so on as the, as the course becomes more developed. So um, uh, it won't, you'll find out about things through those um, uh, email um, channels as well too yeah we'll try we'll put it in the episode description but yeah, yeah thank cool. you so much for your time and yeah pleasure yeah. thanks for doing it um and it's like really great that you guys are doing this i think it's really um really good yeah thank you Tony. to conclude the episode we wish to acknowledge the people of the kulon nations on whose land we are gathered today we pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. For those listening who may be based elsewhere, we pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land from wherever you may be listening from. We especially welcome any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening in today. Mm -hmm.